0: Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director of Midstream Strategy at East Daily Capital. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcats.
1: Welcome back to the PetroNerds podcast. Um, I'm your host, Tricia Curtis, the CEO of PetroNerds.
0: And I am your co-host, Ethan Bellamy, Managing Director at East Daily Capital. We do the midstream. It's Sunday, January 24th. I'm in a fantastic mood. I had a very good brunch date this morning. Tricia, on the other hand, (laughs) is not in a good mood. Um, Between, well, well, we'll get to that, but it's mostly because... Our new president has finished off Keystone XL, put a moratorium on oil and gas permitting and leasing for 60 days on federal lands and other agencies. So we'll get into that, but I'm going to start with a market recap. Is that all right with you? Yes. And right. I'm
1: always in a good mood, but yeah, I have plenty of ranting to go on here. Uh, okay. So. Fair
0: enough. It'll be the Trisha rant episode. So let's start with natural gas. Stunk up the joint this week, dropped 11%. The February contract retreated to 245. You know, we're halfway through the gas storage season, and we're behind about 7% above the five-year average, three TCF in storage. Season to, to date draws are are just shy of uh, a TCF at nine, eight, 918 Bs. Uh, that's versus the five-year average of 940 Bs. Um, U.S. feed gas for LNG came off a little bit from the peak of 11.5 Bs a day. We were down to 10.9. Part of that is likely due to the fact that all the LNG tankers are, all busy. that capacity sopped up and busy. Yep. Um, so that's still pretty constructive. Oil was pretty much flat week on week, 52 and change for WTI, 55 and change for Brent. Um, on the positive side, we saw the IA uh, in its monthly report cut uh, first quarter twenty one estimates by six hundred thousand barrels a day. Um, looking on, a, looking for one point one million barrels a day of draws against stockpiles every day this quarter. So that's fairly constructive.
1: They also cut the uh, their demand outlook by a couple hundred thousand barrels a day as well.
0: Yep, um, the Saudis cut February supply to Asia last week. Said the same for Europe this week. Uh, data indicate Iraq is uh, looking better on OPEC compliance Um, the Chinese uh, reported December throughputs 70,000 barrels a day below the record set in November Um, lockdowns in China are threatening demand I think that was the biggest driver of the oil market in the latter part of this week where um, both Middle East Asia and a little resurgence in China on lockdowns uh, threatened demand um, the DOE posted uh, weekly uh, build and crude of 4 million barrels a day. That was pretty bullish. However, refined products – or excuse me, pretty bearish. Refined products looked a little better. Uh, both gasoline and distillate um, beat consensus. Um, so the market response – oh, I should also add the, the EIA drilling productivity report saw February at 7.5 million barrels a day. That's versus 7.6 in January. Um, down 90,000 barrels a day this is for the major plays. Um, every basin except the Haynesville was down month on month. So constructive. So the market response. Bakken players with federal leases got punched in the nose. EOG was down 7%. The gas names got hit worst on the week. Range was down 15%. Southwestern was down 14%. Um, Halliburton beat the on the quarter um, or four of roughly 70 stocks in the F&P uh, uh, oil and gas index uh, reported all beat, uh, nevertheless down 7% on the week. Um, they did say that they expected the bottom of activity in international this quarter, which is nice. And then they were positive on the first quarter of uh, North American activity. NOV was down 9%. They pre-announced weak EBITDA and soft demand. So the S&P oil and gas, the index, better known as the XOP, that was down 2% this week. The Philly Oil Field Service Index down 4.4% this week, Ilarian MLP energy index down 3% this week. And then refiners positive 3.3% this week. Uh so at least something was up. It was good.
1: I I think Refiners are positive, one, because they're uh <clears throat> refineries are going out of business. So the refiners that make it might be in better territory. I would also like to comment that the like so, actual if you're you're following just like EIA monthly production data for the U.S. So I guess when you say constructive, I mean production is down. We're largely down. We're down to 10.5 million barrels per day as of October, and that's really coming out of the Gulf of Mexico, which we're going to get into more stuff on this moratorium of where we're going to see declines. But everything's um, everything's sort of holding up. But Gulf of Me- or federal offshore Gulf of Mexico came down considerably from 1.5 million barrels per day in September down to a million barrels a day in October. So that was the biggest. Um, that was the biggest tip. I would also note that the like the, the weekly ending stocks, excluding the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and then the weekly ending stocks um, inc- of crude oil and product, excluding Petroleum Reserve, both of them are in the right territory. So I thought the market was a little bit over, overly mute. I mean, the fact that prices didn't move down and there were concerns about lockdowns in China told us that we had drawdowns for the last three weeks in Cushing. Um, same for the other... the. Petroleum products in the US combined with with oil. Those charts in the last three weeks look good. And that we've had, if you saw the IEA report, I mean, we are seeing in the last, at the end of last year, we were seeing material stock draws. We're seeing material stock draws now. And we were seeing all the supplies we mentioned before coming from Libya and all these places. So I think the market's in slightly better shape than uh, a lot of folks um, in the market want to give it credit for. And Very. obviously the Saudis are uh, cutting a million barrels per day. So that's helping.
0: It's helpful. Very helpful. You were dead right on $50 we're going, the market feels like it wants to go higher here. If we didn't have this news out of China, I I think we'd be pushing 55.
1: Yeah, and I feel like the fundamentals, if this was not, I don't know, the fundamentals are telling us it does want to go a little higher. And I think that's, as we talked about in previous podcasts, that should make people a little nervous. I mean, one, there's a number of complications with prices going too high too fast. Um, there's a number of issues with, with production coming online, maybe not in the U.S., but around the globe. And it just... It, in theory, the way the numbers are working out, um, it should go a little higher, but it doesn't. It's, we're, we're kind of stuck right now. I think part of that's the reality that the Saudis are holding the bag right now. I mean, they did do a million barrel they cut. And, um, and I do think that if you listen to our previous podcast, I think the market has missed this by a long shot of really dissecting and interpreting how the Saudis thought about the market and how the Russians thought about the market and the fact that they're just not quite on the same page, but they're working through this together.
0: All right, so should we move to the elephant in the room?
1: Yeah, we we really should. Um, And we have a lot of, there's a lot of market talk we'll get into here. I
0: I was going to talk about Axel coating my arm with saliva before (laughs) we got started. Okay, no, we can... (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, we're making Ethan's making great progress with Axel. So it's, it's great. Uh, so yeah, so the elephant in the room, I mean, is obviously this was a busy week for the Biden administration. And um, I was thinking back about this when I've worked through, you know, I've, I've over 10 years of experience and I was in D.C., during the Obama administration, and um, had worked with a w- had worked with government agencies, worked with Department of Energy um, during that time. So I think I have a pretty decent understanding of how um, Obama dealt with you know crude oil production in the us and dealt with and keystone excel was just happening there so i literally cut my teeth the first projects i ever worked on was keystone excel in north dakota and i went to a conference in dc at the four seasons and it was called greening of the canadian oil sands and it was before anyone even knew what keystone excel was and i worked for this tiny little think tank called the energy policy research foundation and we started working on this this pipeline nobody had heard of just because we did economic policy and technical analysis and we talked about this Keystone XL pipeline of like, hey, this is a pipeline that goes from uh, Alberta all the way to the Gulf Coast. And it takes, you know, increasing volumes of oil sands, which we were demanding. uh, And we and it brings it to the Gulf Coast refineries. And it was a perfect match for the crude quality type. It actually made a lot of sense economically. There was a number of reasons why it it sort of made sense. And then over time, obviously became controversial, got a lot of pushback. And so this first week, the first day in office, actually within hours, um, Biden axed the Keystone XL pipeline, made great friends with our Northern neighbors who were very keen on that was just, they were super excited about that answer. Uh, So, and that costs, I think the numbers I've heard were everything from 8,000 to 12,000 jobs that will be pink slips, like immediately that people are getting, that we're actually working on the construction of the pipe. And that's, that's like lost. It's lost capital. This pipe was already purchased. It's literally was being constructed and built and put into the ground. And by the way, Keystone XL is like, if you, Keystone is actual pipeline that's in the ground. Keystone XL is an extension. Part of Keystone XL was actually running. Uh, Obviously the bulk of the extension will not be built and and won't work, but it's not as though um, that one keystone doesn't exist or that parts of keystone Excel doesn't exist. So this was extremely symbolic uh, and does not do anything in terms of an emission standpoint. In fact, it probably increases emissions. Um, I would argue that it definitely increases emissions because it means that more crude will have to go be a rail. Do you have thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So stop stealing my thunder. I'm the midstream guy here, but yes, I, I know, you know, everything. Midstream <laughs> this fine. is how, this yeah, is how Ethan and that's I met fine, was,
1: uh, on the midstream circuit
0: so yeah i mean so first the the first thing we should say is based on our analysis the market does not need the capacity of keystone xl that being said it does take away shipper optionality and leverage and it makes the other routes more vital for Canadian exports, because you can't start taking other pipes out of service or stop doing some of the other projects that need to be done as easily as if you had this other this other line. The you know, the main thing about it that I have a problem with. So let's let's set aside the the very marginal prospective temperature increase that would come from constraining Will Saints production, hypothetically, in the in the future, based on some hyper complicated model of global temperature. we'll see. Um, and let's just talk about energy security because you know, let me be very clear. I like the Canadians more than just about anybody else that doesn't have an American flag on their on their passport. Um, that's our number one trade partner. We should be working interdependently with both Canada and Mexico on on making sure we have secure, low volatility, energy supply, particularly for our refiners that need to process heavy. And I'd much rather be getting those volumes from Canada than from some other place that we don't necessarily wanna finance or enable, and that's less reliable. So to me, that is the key element of this that I think is is missing. Um, I think it was very symbolic, but I, I do think it's it's pretty unfortunate. Now, that being said, did the market anticipate it was gonna happen? I think so. I mean, it wasn't in our model for TC Energy. Um, and I mean it took
1: I, it took so long for this to even yeah. I mean, this has been this we this has been a decade. It literally has cost them a billion extra dollars in permanent. It's it's cost a billion dollars just to like the process of thinking about this pipeline. And I don't mean to steal Ethan Thunder, but we actually both worked on this. I remember seeing Ethan speak on Keystone Excel. So one of the first times I, I saw him speak, and he was really good and very charismatic. But the sad thing about this is that we import, we import five and a half million barrels of a day of crude oil in the U.S. right now, and it, that's down because of uh, because of COVID, obviously. But we've always all of our. Imports and exports. The majority of it comes from Canada, and we've always had cross-border trade. Part of the was part of NAFTA, now it's part of the new trade agreement. Which there are some, I think, some legal stipulations for the Trump. I'm sorry, the the Biden administration now, because um, they may be able to access pipeline, but I don't think they're going to be able to access crude by rail because they may have some trade issues on the commerce side that they actually can't change. So this does. Directly benefit uh, crude by rail in theory and does therefore in- definitely increase emissions on that side if you're thinking about this being run by diesel. But we've, we, that five and a half million barrels a day that we're importing is three and a half million barrels a day is coming from Canada. And we export, um, we export a significant amount of crude to Canada. And we have, even before we allowed for crude oil exports, that was the one country that we, because we have that trade agreement with. So the cross border pipelines that we have both for crude oil and for product, I mean, this has been going on for decades. And this is a, I mean, we, Canada's a relatively unspoken friend often, and we don't give them enough credit. But in terms of how our system works for energy, it's it's extremely interwoven. So if you look at the reactions by Trudeau and the Canadians, even Tr- they're not a unliberal country. That does, I mean, they embrace climate change and they have measures and stuff in place for this. But they are very pissed about this, and rightly so, because this was something that they wanted to do, and wanted to push through, and um, it's just being they're being told no on the on within hours of taking all this.
0: So what do Canada and New Mexico have in common?
1: What do they have in common?
0: I would say they've got both got a problem with Joe Biden right now.
1: I think they both I think they both do.
0: Um
1: yeah. I mean, I it, Oh, New Mexico, sorry, not Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, New Mexico. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely both have a problem to abide. Depends on. I was on just who.
0: giving you a softball. layup oh, to just yeah, go into part B. Um <laughs> sorry.
1: I I do, do want to close just one thing on Keystone XL before we, we wrap this up is that from a production volume standpoint. So it's roughly I think the Canadian Associated of Petroleum Producers, they didn't update their numbers for last year and they were using old numbers, but they had oil sand they had Canadian production sorry at roughly 5 million barrels per day. Is that about right? And that you guys have capacity You guys have capacity that basically they're fine on technically um, Wilson or not, I'm sorry, Wilson Basin, but Western Canadian crude oil capacity is is still... In the clear right now, so it's only if production was to slowly ramp up over time that they would need an additional pipeline. So basically, incremental volumes or volumes that want to chase arbitrage in different markets are going to go via rail.
0: Right, and I, I just go back to the idea that shippers don't have leverage; they don't. They have less or no optionality, depending on where they are, and uh, it it forecloses the idea of incremental production if we do we get to a sixty dollar plus world where that we had the price incentive to you know start up new oil sands production or or increase uh, conventional production. Um, so I think you basically just have limited option value. You know that's that's the same phenomena that we see in the Northeast on gas in the Northeast US So one of the other things um, a little bit of a digression we can come back to mm-hmm. Um, the, the other stuff from the, the president this week, but, um, mountain Valley also got a, a, two, two deadlock, uh, uh, ruling from FERC where they did not get the ability to cross, uh, streams for the first 77 miles of the pipeline, I believe. And, and that goes uh, from,
1: sorry, it just reminded us listener that goes from where to where,
0: uh, that's a Northeast egress pipe. And it is critical to allowing Northeast producers to uh, produce above a a given volume in the future. And um, unless you've got firm transportation capacity out of the basin, um, you know, that's going to limit production from the Northeast. So we're actually in the middle. uh, We, uh, the excellent uh, team at East Daly Capital, Uh, our analyst, David Dubetz is working on this, um, as we speak, I believe it is Sunday. So yeah, he's probably working, um, to see, you know, what is the impact if we don't get mountain Valley out of the Northeast on the long-term U S gas macro. So these, you know, this is a common theme. It's a different commodity, but look, you cannot have, uh, limitations on resource access, whether that resource is coming from Canada or if it's coming from Marcellus and expect to have stable pricing. I mean, prices are going to go up. Now, I think the U.S. consumer has been an enormous beneficiary of fiscal stimulus by way of overinvestment in the shale business that has, uh, you know, that that drove the shale boom. And nobody on the street appreciates that. But when you start to see higher home heating prices and higher fuel prices at the pump, and part of that can be very easily tracked back to limitations on resource decisions that's going to come home roost to poli- to to politicians. Everybody wants limitations on CO2 as long as they don't have to pay for it.
1: No, and you they don't feel it. And no, no offense yeah. to this, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and spend my this this podcast talking about climate change because there's plenty of others that do that. But I think that you can't I mean we this is a an oil and gas podcast because that's what we we're um that's a our intelligence is on. And I think that if you're, you have to realize that the world is still consuming, at least now, probably 97 million barrels a day of crude oil. And that 53 WTI that we had for the past several years, for the past five years in the run-up to COVID, that's a huge deal. And I think it's incredible that, I mean, if you look at the run-up in US production, and we've mentioned this a million times before, but a lot of folks don't understand this run-up from you know, 10 million barrels a day to th- nearly 13 million barrels per day before COVID. And those million barrels a day on the global oil market really enabled the ability to sort of sanction and to have this um, geopolitical flexibility. Even under Obama, what he was granted a lot of geolo- geopolitical flexibility in the Middle East to do what he wanted because he wasn't beholden; he wasn't going to see a spike in oil prices, and he was afraid to allow crude oil exports because everybody was worried that if they allowed crude oil exports, oil prices would go up. And the same needs to be thought about these politicians who are her, you know, the folks in Congress that are behind Biden right now. They should be very concerned about the tens of thousands of job losses one we're seeing immediately by this, and then um, North Dakota got faced with the same thing. I think before we switch into New Mexico is that without Keystone XL. So Keystone XL may not be a problem on paper right now, but if DAPL, if the Dakota Access Pipeline is emptied, then you start having some severe issues that are not just for Canada, but also for North Dakota. And North Dakota has limited federal land, so it could see some upside there, but it can't if they empty that pipeline. And these are serious things where this is private land, this is money that's already been invested, and there will be legal ramifications. I mean, this will be battled out in the courts. It's not like these companies and these states are going to take this lying down. But I think we we can we can easily segue now into the into the moratorium on or the initial the suspension sorry the suspension of on federal lands which by the way wasn't just suspension of drilling and and leasing on federal lands we actually looked at and printed out the thing because if you saw all the stuff that was going on Twitter and all these other things about the 60-day suspensions, which, by the way, Bloomberg barely mentioned it. The, the major media outlets sort of paid it lip service that there was a 60-day suspension on new leases. And what they don't appreciate is that, by the way, if you want to Google it, and it's hard to find it, it's order number 3395, Google it and actually read it. And Wall Street Journal put out an editorial opinion piece this weekend that discussed and put a little snippet in there to discuss that it's broader than just uh, actual federal lands. And that should make a lot of folks nervous. Because it they included um Indian lands in there, which is kind of uh is kind of crazy because Indian lands do You have
0: the uh, the letter from the I do. Ute, which is I have both. Fantastic. I want to read the the middle paragraph from from the Ute. This is here, that's it right there.
1: No, here's yeah, what you there want. We there you go.
0: Yeah, that's what I want. Okay, so I thought this was great. So this is from um this is from the Ute Indian Tribe Business Committee in, in Utah and Um, This is to the Acting Secretary of the Interior, and uh, the middle paragraph here is is fantastic, which is, your order is a direct attack on our economy, sovereignty, and our right to self-determination. Indian lands are not federal public lands. Any action on our lands and interests can only be taken after effective tribal consultation. So the consultation aspect, uh, if you'll recall, um, on Dakota Access was a huge part of uh, the pushback from... The Standing Rock Sioux. Um, And I mean, certainly, uh, should it surprise anyone that that you speak out of both sides of your mouth, if on the one hand, you want consultation with a tribe, as long as they want to be restrictive on resources like the way (laughs) like the way you're arguing but if they want to go the other direction then maybe we're not going to consult with them so
1: yeah and I uh, think it's just this is a this is a absolute slap in the face to to um, Native American tribal lands of saying because this actually they reference a they've referenced executive order 13175 and if you actually pull that up order which was done in the year 2000 that's an executive order on the consultation and coordination with Indian tribal governments that basically is something to prohibit something like this happening that you just don't force something down the So, in all fairness, it—I just don't think there's a whole lot of legal standing for them to even tell these uh, to tell tribal lands what to do. And, And to be fair. Utah doesn't have, this is the Uinta, base, this is uh, Uinta and the U Indian tribe. So Utah doesn't have a ton. We're not talking about 20 million barrels a day of production or, or you know, tens of thousands, 20,000 barrels a day of production. It's not a ton of production, but we do have production in the Uinta basin. And it's the, I, I think it's conceptually the idea of the sovereignty. This does have implications in North Dakota, where we do have some great rock um, within the, and within these tribal communities. And, Historically, it's been you know depending upon dependent upon the operator and how well they've worked within these uh, within these communities and and that that should be how it is how they ha- if they have a good standing and how they work um, obviously there was a huge issue with Dakota Access that was uh, blown up and it did have a lot of. Um, there was, I would say, that a lot of folks within North Dakota were sort of split um, on this, and I think this is actually an opportunity for these states to, to merge together with these um, these local tribal leaders and realize that they want to take back their sovereignty. I I want to go back to the order as well because the executive order is a temporary suspension of delegated authority, and that should make us a little bit nervous because it's not a temporary suspension of just federal you know, drilling and permitting. It includes that, but it includes a number of other things. And essentially, as this opinion article in the Wall Street Journal put it, this is a way that um, the Biden administration is forcing the hand of... So basically, you can't... If you are a delegated authority, and this includes... Implementation includes secretary, deputy secretary, solicitor, assistant secretary for policy management and budget, land, minerals and budget... Water and science, fish and wildlife and parks, Indian affairs, and insular and international affairs. So basically, if you're under any of those categories, you can't approve anything. So it's not as though um, if it's on private land, but you still need approval from a higher authority, those folks are not allowed to approve anything for 60 days. And that, I believe, the intention, at least as I'm reading it and and interpreting it in Again, if, if that if this changes could be wrong, that's fine. But the intention is to sort of force the hand of uh, everyone in Congress to approve the cabinet members because the acting secretary um, is not the person who who did this for the um, for uh, on these lands is not. This isn't the deb holland who's going to be the secretary interior. so that should be a huge wake-up call to everyone that the acting secretary is doing this not and this is this is nobody people even heard of let alone the actual secretary because i can't even imagine what's going to happen on the day she walks in office and what she's going to do it's going to this is going to make this looks like child's play and they clarified i mean they're um
0: but i thought you guys were facebook friends
1: I'm not even on Facebook. Uh, I think they, they clarified, the White House actually clarified that this is intention. They did intend this to be uh, permanent. So if anyone's wanting to know in the oil and gas community whether or not this six-day suspension is going to be permanent, the it's full on intention. And I think it's important to call out, like I re-put out on Twitter and on LinkedIn this video that I had done with the digital wildcatters and it was just me doing this, this rant on the implications of a Biden win. And I did this right before the election and told everyone this was going to happen and a lot of people were like oh i just don't know if this is going to happen word for word told them what was going to happen it's happened now and it's important to i I encourage you guys to take a listen to it but it's important for people to think out like this is the first these are the first couple days in office and this is what's this is what's happened and so they basically have put this 60-day suspension in place their intention is to do this long term but it's important to also call out that when asked multiple times both Biden and Harris were asked, are you gonna ban fracking? And they weren't clarified, are you gonna ban fracking on federal land? But they changed their answers multiple times and they said they weren't. And now they're literally clarifying, the White House is clarifying, we full on intend to ban fracking on federal land. And that's, um, that's I know, politicians, you know, change their minds and everything, but that's lying. So it's that's not exactly, I mean, that's what the oil and gas community is facing right now, is they were told one thing and another thing's happening. Um, and this is a time where the economy is not doing well, where the industry was already hit massively. Uh, so these states are now faced with these, States with federal land exposure, which is Wyoming, Colorado, um, and New Mexico, where a lot of this production is from the Permian, all have massive federal land exposure and are all facing already declining state revenues, are already budgets that are already being hit, and now we're faced with this knowing that they're not gonna, all these new permits are going to be suspended. And if you want to know if it's like impacting businesses, call up a company who has exposure on federal land and ask them how their last few days have been. Because one, they're not going to answer the phone because they're too damn busy, you know, putting out trying to figure out what their you know legal moves and everything are, but I mean, it's, it's a crazy firestorm. So this is not like, this is not a small deal.
0: (sighs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Right. Right. Um, well look, I mean, a a lot of this was, we knew it was coming. I think the, the, the rapidity of it is what has shocked people. Um, there's definitely been, I think maybe a little complacency about things. Um, the you industry know, has
1: certainly been a little complacent about this. And
0: and to be fair, things have been extremely volatile and you can be forgiven for having your head down and, and trying to figure out how to make payroll. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's an issue. But collectively, um, you know, people need to be aware of what's happening.
1: And um, I, think the, I think the industry needs to do a better job of like, the industry has historically put their heads down and sort of let things hit them and... This is not the time in which you do that. I mean, this is no different than when I'm speaking when I'm speaking with the Saudis or, or folks abroad and explain to them, you know, ten years ago that the world was changing under their feet with shale. The world is changing right now. I mean, this is unprecedented moves within two days of administration. And to be fair, this could be that they know they're going to have pushback. So might as well shove it all through really fast. Um, but I can, you can already hear the murmur, you know, in on Capitol Hill that there is going to be pushback because even, even democratic constituents who may, or democratic congressmen who may support these measures, they have constituents at home, which may be losing their jobs. And um as, as you, you pointed out in our previous conversations, when you impact local production, you typically impact, uh, you do impact local energy prices. So if you're like Texas is able to have, um, they have lowest cost gasoline in the US and they have um, very reliable renewable energy because they ha- they can take natural gas and they can bring in wind power and everything from the grid. They have that because they have that production. So in New Mexico, where you have a million barrels a day production coming from 6,200 horizontal wells in Leonetti County, which do have a lot of federal land exposure, those that state could feel an immediate, like could feel an impact. They're going to feel on jobs and they're going to feel on state and local revenue and the federal government's going to feel on not getting royalties, but they're also going to feel on not having that local production. And I mean, they're close to Texas, so they may have a a feedback loop there, but it's a lot of jobs for the state and it's just a ton of revenue.
0: Do do you think that this is an easy decision to make precisely because there are, you know, in excess of 5,000 existing permitted wells out there that the impact is really how do you bend the curve of production, say two to five years out rather than an immediate impact necessarily? Man, okay. it, it's one of those things like it's easy to say hey let's be carbon neutral in 2050 if your term is long over and you don't have to worry about you know reaping what you've sown
1: yeah I, that's a that's a really relevant point I mean I think that uh if you if you listen to a I mean, if you listen to a slug of different podcasts and you do research on China and stuff, even uh, the authorities on on chi- on experts on China when talking about China's plan to do, you know, be carbon neutral by 2060, you know, even the people who are very promoting China doing this will say all those all those people are going to be dead um, in 2060 and it's a communist country. So they're not going to probably hit those emissions targets. Here, it's these are... You know a strong agenda, and you can. These are very symbolic moves, and this is stuff that they did campaign on. Now, did they say? Did they campaign on directly on on cracking down on on federal? You know, changing fracking. Uh, They did talk about federal land, so most of us knew that was coming, and they absolutely campaigned on Keystone XL. And so these are really, really symbolic moves. And I think the hope is that hey, it's it is federal land, and they can say, well, we're not impacting everything else. But that doesn't seem to be the goal behind this. The goal behind this, I mean, you read reuters to all these different articles they estimate what production between 10 and 25%. So nobody has the the number perfectly right because if you look at the federal land map it's and I encourage you to just go google it and you can see it's it's sort of intermingled but the reality is that Business doesn't operate in this clean little environment of like, okay, well you've got ten percent of your acreage that's kind of commingled with this, and it's not going to be a problem. It doesn't work that way. If you have that exposure, it it shuts down business. And so yes, we have tons of permits, but like EOG stock, as you mentioned in the opening, it got hammered this week because they have massive federal land exposure. Every company that has federal, every company that's in New Mexico, which by the way is such phenomenal rock, um, and you wanted to be in New Mexico prior to this whole thing, all those companies are getting hammered because they have this exposure. And they didn't, whatever permits they have now, they have. And the assumption is that you're gonna be able to drill and complete those wells. And that's what they actually, they've sort of said that it doesn't impact that. Uh, I, am concerned about that. And I think if you're in the oil and gas community and you're thinking about production, you should be concerned because if in the first 48 hours in office, this is what you saw, I would not put the past them to issue studies on air quality and on methane emissions and everything to make this harder. And even if you're thinking about production, I mean, you can get to a point where if you're starting to think about production on federal lands, existing production, what are the ways it could be more difficult? It would be just increasing studies. And if you're a small producer in Wyoming and you have to to pay a third party for additional studies, this starts getting really, it gets really expensive and it's a way to put folks out of business. So it's certainly a way for an administration to make a symbolic move for the world and saying, we are focused on what we can control. We're going to focus on production. And Biden did say that in his, um, in that speech in which he was asked directly, you know, what are you, how dealing in climate change and production? He said, we are going after production and this is what they, this is what they meant by that.
0: Now, let's talk about the silver lining, though. Let's say you got PDP in the Midland Basin. Everybody else is declining. Your realized price is good because infrastructure is unused. The netbacks are great. Transportation costs are going down. Um, We're limiting gas pipes coming out of gas basins in the Northeast. So your realizations on gas are going to go up. Um, maybe there's, you know, if, if New Mexico starts to trend down, you've got, uh, you know, the same ability to same oil field service capacity out there that's now available to you. So there's less competition for that. I mean, there are some folks who net net are going to be better off.
1: Yeah. I mean, there, the silver lining to this, and we've, we've discussed this before. And I talked about that in this, in this video rant that I did, I think the benefits are the places with, without federal land and that have infrastructure. And so we're already seeing, I mean, and gas is gonna be yes is gonna benefit in places where natural gas does not have exposure to federal land. And we talked about this last spot, Hainville's gonna surge and I mean they're close, they have access to market. Eagleford, people, people are kind of ripping on the Eagleford. I'm betting right now, Eagleford's gonna see it, Eagleford will see a resurgence, not just in oil, but for natural gas activity, because especially if North Dakota gets hit um, unfairly with all this on the pipeline side. But for sure, New Mexico is actually, so the Permian Basin side of New Mexico is producing just shy of these 6,200 horizontal wells are producing just shy of a million barrels per day but the gas side is three and a half BCF a day so that's a lot of gas production from these wells so certainly you're gonna ease pipeline constraints so you're, you're gonna you're gonna help both the crude and the and the gas side a little bit if you do that and that means that all this activity I mean you are gonna see concentrated activity within um, the southern part of the Delaware just off the border um, gas probably is gonna do well. So where you you know Reeves County which is historically not done too well will probably do well on the gas side and I I think Midland where we actually saw Midland doing pretty well this year was cause it's shallower. It's, it's more known. It's more of a historical oil form. I mean, oil play. I mean, these guys know these old vertical wells you have, hundreds of thousands of, I mean, you have tens of thousands of vertical wells within uh, the Permian Basin. And so the Midland is kind of a natural place to go when you know it, it's cheaper to drill and it makes sense. So you're going to have an all kinds of resurgence just within the Permian Basin. And then I think on the Texas side, obviously, and then I think everywhere in Texas. I mean, I've talked about this before, but I think especially if this is supporting oil prices and oil prices are north of 50 sustainably. Now the public's, I mean, I, we are hearing a lot of nervousness, both from, uh, from these public companies who just don't sound super clear on, you know, what's the trajectory for the next 12 months. You know, they, they don't seem like they're going to ramp up production. And I think foreign countries are really trying to understand this. I mean,
0: in fairness to those guys though, it's probably pretty tough to figure that out, right? It is. It it absolutely is. Who knows what could happen?
1: But I think if you want to know, if you want to think about the nuances of shale you need to be following the publics and the permian you'd be following the privates and seeing what like what are they doing because yeah. this is an opportunity if you're a private company and you aren't exposed on the federal landslide you're oil storms of 50 you're in a great spot yeah. so that's where i think that that's the little bit of the silver lining but i think overwhelmingly it's just going to be you know you're just you're just clamping down on places where there's so much oil and gas production
0: this is a, a great spot here for me to plug an East Daily product. We put out a, a report on a weekly basis on Friday called Data Insights. And this week we wrote about who the Delaware Basin gatherers are. And so if you want to watch for comments about the trajectory of New Mexico, which again, I don't think are this year, I think you start to see volume impacts much later on, but those would be from Lucid, which is a private operator, uh, DCP midstream enterprise energy transfer targa western gas Inlink, and some and a few others um, and probably also a good place for me to talk about our midstream activity tracker you know one of the things east daily does which i think is incredibly valuable to understanding the midstream is we allocate every rig to a gnp system in the us and right now the leaders in allocations across north america are Uh, targa's got 42 rigs running on its system followed by energy transfer enterprise and uh west texas gas and dcp midstream so one one private operator in there so that's 42 32 27 25 and 25 rigs respectively and those are all well up from lows um targa's uh systems had 25 rigs running in september and now have um 42 as of the end of, uh, 20. So it's a, quite a change we've seen. These are, these are monthly numbers. So we are, we are seeing a North American comeback.
1: We are. And I think, I mean, we're not seeing though, if you look at, if you look at Wilson basin right now, rig count hasn't jumped super high and we're not seeing it go crazy. We're seeing the rig count overall go up. Uh, so we're seeing the rig count in obviously the Permian go up. We're seeing the rig count go up in these places. I don't, I mean, we haven't seen production in the Permian Basin recover to its pre-COVID levels, and it may take a little while, obviously, to get there. I think that um, regulatory uncertainty, though, depending on how strong it is, it really does impact investment decisions. I mean- You just, you have all these permits and everything, but you also, I mean, that number I was saying at three and a half BCF a day of gas, you have to have the takeaway for this. So if you don't have all the existing infrastructure built out, and by the way, these regulations, other regulations may impact the build out of infrastructure just within New Mexico, which could impact your actual, your existing permits in place. So... It's just not. It's not 100% clear to me that we won't before the end of this year that we won't see a, a we won't see impact on activity. Maybe not exactly on production, but I mean, again, you're not having these are great wells and they're kind of monsters. I mean, six thousand of them that are producing a million barrels a day. So, I mean, that's huge. And I think that if we're looking at overall production, I mean, a lot of folks are debating now on partly what's the what the year is going to exit at. You know, are we going to exit 2021? I mean, right now we're. million barrels per day, we're still way down from what we were, so we have a lot of room to grow. And that in itself, 10.5 million barrels of production out of the U.S. has been helping, being supportive of oil prices in the U.S. and globally.
0: Well, I think we have reached a natural conclusion to our podcast. You always want to keep talking. I know. And you always but, like, oh, it's a natural. Well uh, you natural know, movie. no no no. It's it's the it's the Tao of Steve. Be brief, be excellent, be gone.
1: <laughs> I like it.
0: All right. Well I am your co-host, Ethan Bellamy. This is Patron Nerds Podcast Number Four. It's been a pleasure, Tricia Curtis.
1: Yeah, it has been a pleasure. We thank you guys for listening, and uh, our you know we don't know exactly when this will be released, but the date is is January twenty fourth. So this is sort of timely. We encourage you to listen to the older podcasts, and we will um, have new ones out shortly.
0: And thank you to Digital Wildcatters. Uh, you might want to listen to uh, Colin's next podcast where he'll be entering interviewing Elon Musk about uh, drilling for natural gas in Texas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks awesome. everybody.
1: Thanks. Bye.